All right. Well, happy Easter week, whether you are tuning in earlier in the week or on Sunday, on Easter Sunday. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for being with us. It's a special day. And so I not only put pants on, but also a tie. So you're welcome for both of those. If you're feeling a little underdressed at home in your PJs or wherever you might be, that's okay. I've got you covered right here. So thanks for joining us. We are excited to celebrate Easter. He is risen. And he is risen indeed is what you might say if there's anybody in this room with me. It is super weird preaching to a camera and I miss all of you. I'm picturing each of your faces here right now. But thank you for rolling with the punches and being flexible. Thank you for doing what you can uh, in order to help out and love your neighbor from a distance right now. We like to say we are practicing a physical distance, but not a social distance. We are still very much at work and connected to one another and at work in our communities. And so find ways to love your neighbor, find ways to serve one another, find ways to be connected to each other through all the technology and the tools that we have today. All right. And find ways on Sunday this week to joyously celebrate our risen Savior. This is the day that we recognize we have life and we have an eternal life and an eternal hope. And we celebrate this all the time, but Easter is the moment where that day year where we really, really, really shout it from the rooftops because Jesus has risen from the tomb. And once he did that, not only was there this man thousands of years ago who we believe got up and walked out of death and into life, but what that did is it inaugurated new life for all of humanity and all of creation if we would follow him into that. As, as Psalm 23 says, the shepherd who leads you through the valley of the shadow of death. If we follow Jesus, we follow him through that valley of the shadow of death, and we get to come out into newness of life, out of that tomb, out of that grave, and that is good news. It gives us a hope. As we've been going through the book of 1 Thessalonians, we've been seeing that Paul's writing to this early church in a Greek city, Thessalonica, of a city where they believed in all kinds of other religions, all kinds of other gods, but he's writing to the few people who believe the good news that there is a God at work bringing restoration, healing, and newness of life. And it's found in the life and the work and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So he's writing to them saying, I commend your faith and your love and your hope. You've shown faith and you've believed in this truth. You've shown a great love. You've experienced the love of God and you're showing that love to other people. And you have a hope now. You have a hope that will carry you through whatever you are going through right now. And they were going through a lot. They were going through a lot of persecution for believing what they believed, but they had a hope to take them through that. And so these three things, faith, love, and hope, not only was he encouraging them that they've been doing well in them, but he encouraged them to continue to go deeper in those things. And as we turn to the end of chapter four this morning or evening or whenever it is, we are going to see that he continues to press them on into a deeper hope. And so join me in reading the word. 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For we say this to you by a word from the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. 
For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we'll always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is a letter written from a guy named Paul to the church in Thessalonica thousands of years ago but it is also a word inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And he is still speaking to us today. Father, we pray that you would speak to us through this word, that your spirit would fill us with your hope and that we would be transformed to walk in newness of life. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in about 1830, there was this guy by the name of John Darby who invented the doctrine, the idea of the rapture. The rapture where suddenly Jesus would come back to earth and he would snatch up, he would take with him those who have trusted in him, who believed in him. Uh, Maybe, as what became popularized later, maybe they said a certain sinner's prayer, a, a certain wording in a prayer one time. And so he would snatch them up and take them with him and carry them away into the clouds. And there would be all these other people left, left behind. And that idea just caught on like a match in a haystack. And it has spread all throughout the world. And it's become super popular. We have all those left behind series of books and then the movies and then the reboot of the movie, which was possibly Nicolas Cage's biggest failure ever and so on. But I say that it was invented in 1830 because the truth is all throughout Christian history, And even Jewish history, there is no evidence that that idea ever existed. There was no evidence in the Torah or in the scriptures that this idea of God coming or Jesus coming and snatching away those who trusted in him and leaving everyone else behind to fend for themselves, that did not exist. And if that didn't exist for those who walked closest with Jesus and for centuries beyond that, then we have to take it into question when suddenly it comes in the 1800s. And we have to take into question, why is this such a popular belief now, today? Here's the thing. At the beginning of what we just read, what Paul's writing is, I want you to have hope, not like the others around you. The others around you, he says, they don't have this hope. And why is that? The others around them, the the city of Thessalonica, Greek people, they believed in an afterlife. They believed that one day their their bodies would fade, they would fail, they would die, or as what's written in this letter, they would go to sleep. And then their spirit or their soul or something else would detach from it, and they would live in the afterlife, this ethereal being for eternity. That doesn't sound too far off from the rapture I just described, does it? And so what Paul's saying is, no, no, you have a hope far greater than that. It's a much different hope. Because this idea of this disembodied life that would go into eternity actually is not very hope-filling. The idea of floating on the clouds, on on a pillowy cloud while you're playing a harp with maybe a halo above your head, actually, as I was growing up as as a child, that sounded super boring to me. But what the Christian faith is, what the good news of Jesus is, 
is that there is a resurrection, a real physical life. It's what makes sense with what Jesus did, and it's what makes sense with the context of the whole story of the Bible, the whole story of the world. We find at the very beginning that God creates physical world and a physical universe with stars in the sky, and he spins the planets into orbit, and he gets down and dirty when he forms the first human being with his own hands and the second human being out of that human. And he joins them as one in their physical bodies. And he breathes his own breath of life into them in order to give these bags of dirt life. It's a physical world he creates and he sets them into, and he calls them to care for it. This, God says, is good. Very beginning, this is a good creation. And so what kind of story would it be then if our rebellion, our sin, and our rebellion against the creator, which sets the earth into decay, as Romans 8 says, the whole earth, the whole world, all of creation is groaning because of the rebellion against God that we set in motion as humans. And and that starts setting it into decay. What kind of story would it be then if God has to come up with a plan B? And go, okay, well, that didn't work out. So here's what we're going to do. Those of you who believed in me, those of you who did the right things, those of you who prayed enough, those of you who said this certain prayer, I will come and I got an escape plan for you, an evacuation route. And I'm going to come and snatch you up. And then the rest is just going to blow up one day, right? That kind of story actually tells us that our sin, our rebellion against God, the creator, is more powerful than the creator which is not the story of the Bible and is not the true story of the whole world. But the true story of the whole world is that that God comes down again and gets dirty in the physical, real world. And he is born as a physical, real human into this world. God in the flesh, Jesus comes down and he walks with real feet and flesh and bone on a real earth. And he feels pain, physical and emotional, And he goes through the pain of being whipped, of human spit landing on his skin, of him being beaten, of a crown of thorns digging into his brow, of his body being laid against a splintery wooden beam, nails going through his wrists and his feet, a spear piercing his side. And that physical body was laid in a tomb and on the third day rises again. The tomb was empty. The physical body of Jesus walked out of that grave, walked out. The body was never found. His body, he dwells in eternally. Now, again, what kind of story would it be if this Jesus lives eternally in a physical body and yet you and I have this disembodied soul floating around somewhere? That is not the story of Scripture. The story is that Jesus rose from the grave. And listen to what Paul wrote. He said, after saying in verse 13, I don't want you to be uninformed considering those who have died so that you'll grieve like those who have no hope, those who believe in a disembodied afterlife. Verse 14, he says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So listen, in the same way that Jesus died 
passed through the valley of the shadow of death and rose again in his real physical body in the same way we believe that our God will raise us to newness of life. That's good news because that means that you will have a real, experiential, tangible, eternal life living with Jesus. You will taste good food. You will experience the cool breeze of air blowing on you. You will be able to feel the sand between your toes. If you hate beaches, then that's fine. You can go feel the grass underneath your feet. You get to experience the goodness of creation without all of the damage that we've done. That's the hope that we have. And so Paul heard that the Thessalonian church, those who believed in this city of Thessalonica, they believed this good news, and then they started seeing some of their friends pass away. Maybe even some of their friends were being killed for believing in this truth. And so they're starting to wonder, wait a second, what's going on? We were told this this story that this God came in the flesh and he died in, he died in our place. And then he rose to new life and that we could have life forever with him. What's happening to our friends who have died? We've seen their bodies laid in the tomb. Now what? And so that's why Paul goes on and he says in verse 15, we, we say this to you by a word from the Lord. The Many theologians believe what this means is, is that the disciples who followed Jesus around heard Jesus say this at one time. There's lots of things Jesus did and said that didn't get recorded in the gospel accounts. And so this might be one of them. But he says, we, we say this to you by word from the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. And he goes on. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. There's a lot of imagery going on there, which we'll unpack in a second. But Paul's main objective here is to pastor his people through this. You are concerned, you're scared, you're wondering what's happening to your friends, your family, your loved one who have passed away. And he's reassuring them, just like Jesus stepped out of the tomb, so will they. If they have trusted in Jesus, if they have followed him, if they are in Christ, they will pass through death too. And then if there's anyone following Jesus who's still alive on that day that Jesus comes back, you also, that's what comes next. You who are still here. And what we know is all those people have actually passed in history. And yet he, this promise he held out is still true that when Jesus comes back, when he returns, just as he passed through death, so will the dead. So he's wanting to be a pastor here. He's wanting to care for his people. He's wanting to shepherd them through a moment of loss. This is not necessarily a theological doctrine that he's putting out there. He's reminding people just of the true story that they heard. But what he does is what any good speaker, what any good writer, what any good communicator does, he uses imagery that helps you understand. And this is where we get caught up in the story because Darby in 1830 and us today in 2020, we typically tend to read and hear things through a lens of our context and our current situation. It's it's natural. We do that. But we have to remember he's writing to a specific people group right now. And so I I want you to think about this. Let's use a picture of what we have today. My kids, when their friends come over to play, when our friends pull up in their van and their boys start getting out of the van, 
my kids are watching at the window. They're waiting in anticipation because they're so excited to go play with their friends. Through social distancing, that hasn't happened as much these days. But you remember those days, right? And so they're, they're at the window waiting for their friends. And when they see them get out, what do they do? They immediately open up the door and they run out to meet them. Does that mean they stay out in the front yard with them the whole time? Sometimes they play for a bit, sure. But what they do is they run out to meet their friends and then they bring them back in so that they could play in the house or they can go in the backyard or they can go swimming or they could do whatever. Their excitement leads them to watch in anticipation and then run out to meet them. Paul's using imagery here about this. You see, what would happen during these days is when a king would go out to battle and win a victory with his army on behalf of his people, as that king was riding back home into town, the people would hear from a messenger who came ahead of time that victory had been won, and the people would run out, out of the gates of the city to go and greet their king, to go and greet the victorious army and cheer them and welcome them back home, and they would bring them back in. They would usher them back in like a parade. Paul's using imagery that the Greek Thessalonians would have known well to tell them what's going to happen, what this is going to be like when Jesus one day returns. Listen, those who have died, who trusted in Jesus, don't worry. It's like they're sleeping. That's why he uses that language, those who are asleep. He doesn't even say die. Remember when Jesus was called to go and save this girl who passed away and he gets there late according to their standards? And he's like, don't worry, she's just sleeping. And everyone starts laughing at him. But Jesus knows. Jesus knows who he is and the power that he has, that he has the power of life in his very voice. And he says, little girl, get up. Just like he does to Lazarus the week before Jesus goes to his own grave. Lazarus, get up, come out of that tomb. They're just sleeping. And so Paul's saying, those who are asleep, when Jesus returns, they'll rise up and greet the Lord. Those who are still alive, walking around on this earth, they too will, it's like they will go and greet the Lord out of excitement, anticipation, and welcome him. Welcome him into his kingdom. I want us to get a picture of what this really looks like. And we find this in Revelation chapter 21. The vision John gets, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Pause. This is where we also start to have some trouble, right? I saw a new heaven and a new earth because the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And we go, oh yeah, that doesn't sound like uh, Jesus is restoring things. It sounds like it blew up, right? And it went away. Hold that thought. We're going to talk about what that word new means, okay? But listen to this. The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Coming down where? To earth. Let's continue. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity. That's good news. He will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief crying and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. That's good news. We're looking forward to a day where on this earth, 
God comes and dwells with us and there will be no more pandemics. There will be no more economic crises. There will be no more sickness or viruses. There will be no more death. There will be no more loss of jobs. There will be no more allergies. There will be no more wondering where you're going to get your next meal. There will be no more wondering how you're going to pay that bill. There will be no more struggling with a relationship with someone in your family or your neighbor down the road. All of that will be gone. And yet the goodness of creation will remain. Now let's talk about that word new. There's a new heaven and a new earth, right? Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.17. This is about you and I. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and see, the new has come. Now you and I know if we're in Christ, our, our bodies weren't obliterated, right? We didn't cease to be and then a new 2.0 version of us came. No, no, no. That language is that you have been transformed into something new. And so in the Greek, in the writing of this text, the original writing, there are actually two words used for new. One is neos, which is like, it's brand spanking new in the timeline of all things. Never seen it before. Then there's another word, kainos. And that new means to be made new, renewed, to be transformed into something like new. Which one do you think they're talking about here? Because you have already been here. And at the moment, if you're in Jesus, and if, if you had this moment, you know what I'm talking about. When you come to trust in who God is and who Jesus is, you're still walking in the same body, aren't you? In the same way, the earth and the heavens are going to be transformed. Remember Romans 8, all of creation is groaning, not to be obliterated and replaced, but groaning to be transformed and made new. Where all the ugliness of our rebellion against God that brought decay into creation will be gone, but all the goodness of God's creation will remain. This is why this matters. Listen, if your hope is one day you will get to leave this place, you have an evacuation plan, an escape route, why do you care about any of it right now? But if your hope is Because listen, that hope is just like the Thessalonians who didn't believe. Paul says they had no hope. I don't want you to be like them, he writes. But if your hope is everything you see in this world that's wrong will be made right. And everything that you enjoy in this world that's good because God put it here, because there's still goodness in his creation, will be magnified. And you and your body will live a real, physical, tangible, experiential life with the God who created you, with the God who created all things. And he will come down and he will dwell with us within it and enjoy his good work right with you. That is something to hope for. And we have hope because, not because we heard this fable, not because, oh man, I wish that were true. But remember, we've talked about this weeks ago, that real biblical hope is not just an empty wishing. Real biblical hope is believing in something because we've seen evidence of it before and it's pointing towards something to come. We have the good news that Jesus has come and he rose again 
from death into life. And because of that, we have hope that one day we too, in the same way as Paul writes that Jesus rose, we too will rise, passing through death into life. Listen, if you don't have that hope, if you don't believe that good news, I invite you to. I invite you to examine it. I invite you to ask questions about it. I invite you to talk to somebody about it. I invite you to reach out to me about it. But I invite you to look into that good news. It's good news. We call it the gospel, which means good news for a reason. Because it produces hope. And especially in times like this, when things are uncertain, we hold on to a hope of what we know is certain, that we know how this story ends that the God who came down at creation and got his hands dirty, the God who came down as a human to be one with us in Jesus is coming down again to restore all things. And he is bringing his kingdom, this new Jerusalem down to earth and God will dwell with his people. Now, if you believe that good news and you've been distracted by all the anxieties around us, by all the fears of this world, by all the concerns of the day, I invite you to renew that hope. I invite you to also to examine that good news, to hold on to the hope that we have. And not only that, but to share that hope. Because here's the thing. Now that you have that hope, you also have a job. If I were to continue reading that verse I put up here in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, when he says, that old has passed away, the new has come. He goes on to say, and now, and now you are to bring that newness of life to others around you. He says, you are ambassadors or witnesses of this good news and this hope that you have. If this story is true, that God is reconciling all things and restoring this physical earth in your physical body, then it's no longer an escapism that we hold on to. It's no longer who cares what's going on here. I'm going to be out one day. But it's, no, I get to join in the work God is doing of bringing restoration here. I get to join in the work of seeing this earth restored and renewed. I get to join in the work of seeing myself restored and renewed with God. I get to join in the work of calling others into this newness of life. That's the story of the resurrection. And that's the story of our faith. Pray with me. Father, we believe this good news but we pray, God, help our unbelief. Lord, those who might be listening who don't believe this good news, we ask that you would speak to their hearts right now, even in this moment. Lord, transform us. Help us to fix our eyes on you, on newness of life, on the hope of the resurrection, that one day you will restore all things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.